How you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you? I uh, just got in from a anti-pornography talk, so I'm feeling great. Nice, nice. And I had a guy screaming at me the whole time. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. So go on. Um, I don't want to make fun of the guy because obviously he has issues. But there was a guy at this event who I'm trying to talk about pornography and it's what it does to the human brain and all of these things. And this guy's like, yeah, that sends you to hell. And the whole time he's just writing down scripture verses and all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. and just periodically he would interrupt me and uh, say all these things. And I was like, and I, you know, he's like, what do you do? You know, what do you do? So he said, oh yeah, that's a very good point. Thank you. And uh, moving on. And you know, you just, and he's sitting in the front, front and center and he's just yelling. And it's like, uh, I know the guy next to him at one point put it, leaned his hand over and put his hand on the guy's shoulder. Was like, "Come on, come on!" And I was warned beforehand. Yeah, <laughs> but man, a lot. Oh, so like as I'm, he's, so he's that guy. Yeah, and as I'm giving resources to help people if they themselves are porn addicted or they got kids or whatever, they need a therapist. I'm rattling off all these acronyms and stuff from Mafred's the porn myth. He has a lot of great resources. His other podcast, um, Love People Use Things which is awesome, Elput. Uh, he um, he has a resource page, and it just gives you a handful of places. Like, if you are struggling and you need to find a certified sex addiction therapist, you go to IITAP, which is this international body of therapists. Mm-hmm. And I'm, like, giving, like, I'm having to spell it, like, I-I-T-A-P, and then, he's, and then he gives his name and spells his name. I'm like, okay. What? Okay. You know, I mean, it's just a guy, you no, know, it's not like, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't want to make fun of the dude, but it is so difficult yeah. being a speaker and trying to work around that. And it's not the first time that that's happened. It's actually happened. I don't know. I would say in the last maybe eight, six, eight years of speaking, it probably happened to me about seven or eight times. But you literally have a person who just it's, it's like the it is to religious speakers what a heckler is to a comedian. Mm hmm. But except do you think a lot of time they're they, they're helping they, they think they're helping? Oh, that 100 percent. This guy was like shouting out scripture verses. But I will say, though, that, you know, if they're if you're a comedian and someone's a heckler, you have every right to use all the tools <laughs> in your bag of tricks <laughs> mm-hmm. to shut them down. I think heckling is got to be the dumbest thing on the face of the earth. But I'm a religious guy at a religious talk where this guy's think he's religiously helping and. Oh, you just, I'm, I am, I am borderline resourceless. If this guy would try to dominate the conversation, then it w- I would have had to shut him down, but he would just say a couple things and then get quiet. It just so mm-hmm. throws me off. No, it's, and it's weird when, when you're, um, especially when you're doing a thing that you're really good at and you have a lot of experience with and you get into that flow where you're like, okay, it's, you know, it's not that you're just on automatic pilot uh-huh. or anything, but uh-huh. you are in your groove and you, you know, it, you're actually able to be more creative while that's going on. You know, I won't ever, I won't ever forget when it first happened, me being in the classroom, I could teach and like watch what the kids are doing, respond to what they're doing while I'm teaching and be, you know, two to three steps ahead. And when someone screws that up, it's just the worst. Yeah, it just totally gets in your mind and throws you off and all this stuff. So, but it went well. It went well. I talked for about an hour and a half and had Q and A as part of that hour and a half. And afterwards, he came up to me. He's like, "I'm gonna call you and give you a bunch of Bible verses because 
you need to tell people <laughs> that they're going to go to hell if they look at pornography. Sexual sin is important. I was like, totally agree. Totally agree. Here's my phone number. So I gave him your number. <laughs> Here you go. 208. <laughs> five, 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 four. <laughs> oh, man. That's awesome. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, man, I am in the thick of things, and it is good, but it is busy. Mm. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. You ready for this? Yeah, now, let's do it. Your mom and dad did an excellent job when they found out you looked up pornography when you were a kid. What mm-hmm. advice? What advice would you give a fifth grader who probably hasn't seen pornography? but at school might be placed in a position where older kids have phones and all this stuff and they'll show mm-hmm. them pornography. Like let's say it's a sports ball team. He's going into sixth grade, the eighth graders, you know, it's all one middle school with the varsity or whatever you call sixth grade or eighth graders, you know, whatever the main team. And they mm-hmm. have porn on their phones. What would you tell that kid to do? Ugh. Oh man, that's so tough. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this is something that has been going on for quite some time, but in terms of it being the academic problem that it is in terms of on the phones is relatively new within education within the past, I'd say, eight years right, or so, as when ten small years kids with the getting iPhone. smartphones. Yeah, 10 years the iPhone's been around. It wasn't until the second gen that... It made popular sales, and then yeah, and it probably took about probably like fifth generation three, that yeah. it was in the hands of kids, right? I would yeah. Uh, yeah yeah yeah. So you're talking really 2013, 2014, that it really got to kids like you know your average yeah. like what we would identify clearly as a kid, not as a teenager, but below that, not even yeah, a not an adolescent, a, a kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the rules still apply. I think one, you go and tell an adult, and to come and tell to tell me the parent that it happened and you're and really stress that you are not in trouble that we're there to help you and to support you. There's a book called good pictures, bad pictures. Yeah. We've not read that. that. I need to. Yeah. Um, I think communications with adults is probably the most important part. Um, it's just, it's so hard because it's not like how it was in the past where it was for the most part, if that would were to happen, and not an isolated incident, but one that uh, was not as common as, say, a phone to where it's just on every kid's phone there. You know, it was right. it would typically be one or two kids that had some pictures or something. I can remember in eighth grade, they put a picture of a girl's boobs in the guy's in the guy's bathroom in eighth grade. And everyone went and like looked at it and it was like a big deal. And the teachers came, blocked off the bathroom and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But now that's so that happened one time. One time in when I was in junior high, and now it's common. So to answer your question, I really don't know uh, the right answer to that because it's something that became a problem uh, a- after I was out of schools where that would be a thing. Yeah, so I said to her, I, I first I asked for other people to talk, and some people started saying like, oh, well, this would be where, you know, you make sure you have open lines of communication. Also, I said, no, 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 no. You have done your job, but now your kid is in a social situation. What do you Mm -hmm. tell them to do? 
And I said, outside of, you know, walking away, telling an adult, you know, because to me, pornography is something that is so easily accepted by young people, but older people, at least mm-hmm. older people like us, see the dangers. Like, like I remember getting in the face of like a seven-year or not seven-year-old. I guess my daughter's seven. Well, maybe like a nine-year-old kid in Europe who was staring at boobies on a magazine rack at the you know where they sell cigarettes and magazines and newspapers. You know, in Europe, they're much more mm-hmm. lax with that stuff. And uh, he was just staring at this naked woman on the cover of some porn magazine. And I put my face in between him and the magazine. I said, I go, no, no. And immediately he he got really brave. And I said, mm-hmm. it'll hurt you, kid. Trust me. And he just looked at me. He's like, Grüß Gott. Because um, he was German. I didn't know. Anything. <laughs> and then he walked off like the Hulk. <laughs> um, but like, you know what I mean? Like the weight of it is is one of those things that's like, kid, you won't know until you're older why this is so bad. So I am prone to overreact. Like if I was that kid, if I was a coach and they were like eighth graders thought it funny to show it to incoming fifth graders, I would lose my damn mind. But the damage would already yeah. be done yeah. by the time I hear about it. Mm-hmm. And so like mm-hmm. to a kid, I just want to say turn around. But like, you know, if that were me and I was put in that situation and I was in sixth grade and an eighth grader was showing me this stuff and I was innocent because at that time I wasn't, I was the one showing it. I would have tried my best like as soon as i realized socially i was going to be trashed i would immediately try to shame and humiliate the older kids which would probably ostracize me or they would think it's funny or i'd have to apologize like for instance i if i knew at, at sixth grade what i would know what i knew now i would be like i'm not gonna look at porn why not man what you what you faggot what you fucking what you gay you know because that's what they do right I would be like, well, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, knowing knowing Matt Fred's book, be like, uh, well, you know, it, it, you know, you won't be able to have sex, or you know, you'll get erectile dysfunction, it'll ruin your sex life, and oh, you want to be addicted to, you know, a picture? I'd rather have the real thing, or you know, like you would, I, I would, that would be my, like, I don't know how I could tell a kid, listen, man, they're gonna start, they're gonna start well, to ostracize you, and you need to return with so many insults that you can keep your dignity and shame and humiliate <laughs> them, because yeah. that's the way the playground works, son. How do you tell a kid that? Just like I did. <laughs> no, I yeah. don't. I don't know. Well, I mean, know, honestly, it's, it's terrible. What one of the things that I would do? I mean, that I. I mean, if we have kids, Lord willing, one thing that I think I'm going to do is really do my best to put my kids in a school where that is uh, not the norm, which is super, really, really hard. So I think that means you have to have a school where all the parents are on the same page. And the crappy part means that that really rules out the vast majority of public schools. I'm not saying that it's not an issue at Catholic schools, but you have more options to find a school where the majority of the parents will be on board. Yeah. Yeah, I told her, I I said, I'm not trying to say that. I I just said to this woman, I said, your kid, if your kid does this, they are going to be on the outside. Like that is intolerable. It is so accepted in youth culture. Mm -hmm. It is a part of youth culture. And and I said, so you have to be prepared as a parent that your values are going to push them to the outside at such a young age. And she said, oh, I know. The kid's are already there. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, how about that? But, I mean, I think it's also, um, I mean, you are kidding yourself if you think that it's not going to be a problem at Catholic schools. But I would want to be at a place where the parents are being as proactive as they can about that. Yeah. That so I just. They I, are talking about it. Yeah. That they're. I gave a talk at a Catholic school 
one was on the digital life of kids and the other one was on pornography at St. Anne's mm-hmm. and Tomball. It was the same guy that brought me in, Matt Reggett's fan of the show, Matt Reggett's at Prince of Peace today that I did the kids school. And just having that there, I trust that school a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, those are uh, decisions. I think a lot of our, I think a lot of people who listen to our podcast, they're, you know, four or five years away or so from having kids. Oh, actually, no. I mean, we have a lot of people who do have kids pretty close to the age of 10 or are four or five years away from being in high school. And um, that's, these are things we're going to have to, we're going to have to start to talk about. And I think school administrations and uh, school boards and pastors and every, this is, this needs to be open dialogue, full on, um, uh, all hands on deck kind of thing. Do you think the shame of, of this is ever going to go away of, of talking about it or the shame or the embarrassment that some people have? For the people that think it's wrong, I don't think it'll ever go away. I think part of shame is the guilt of doing something you know is wrong, right? So, like, looking Mm -hmm. at someone naked, even if they want you to, but you're objectifying them, there will always be a wrongness there, and there will always be new Mm -hmm. people discovering that wrongness. But I think Mm -hmm. so much of our culture has glamorized pornography. It's not just that it's been normalized. It's that it's been glamorized. And um, mm-hmm. and I think you see this pornographic worldview woven throughout so much stuff. Not just like, hey, I want to watch a fictionalized medieval fantasy drama called Game of Thrones. Oh, it's a lot of pornography, right? Like, it's not just that porn is everywhere. It's that we elevate these people. And, uh, you know, Ron Jeremy, mm-hmm. when he goes and does these college talks, I mean, he gets standing ovations. They think he's a hero. And... Mm-hmm. You know, and he talks about how when he's having sex with these women, he's just thinking about, like, his dead grandmother, his cat. Like, he's not even thinking about having sex with a human being. And it's just work to him, you know. And uh, and mm-hmm. and we have commoditized, industrialized, and commercialized the intimacy between a man and a woman. And that is just utterly shocking. Like, th- just thinking about it in that way is shocking to me. But because it's been commercialized, it now can become glamorized. You know, it's not just some shady thing there are new york times bestsellers written by porn stars you know and so there's elements of this mm-hmm. that i think is just it's just a complete and total train wreck yeah i often think of the line from the truman show where they say uh, how does it end or how does it all end or how will it end referring to like the end of his life like how does he die and i think about that as it relates to just pornography and the stuff like how does this end like um, and I, I don't mean in the instance of like, how do we stop this? But like, what is the breaking point for when even the secular culture goes, oh, this is too far? Like, what are we, go- what's going to happen in order for there to be that reasonable realization that, that this is too much? Yeah, the only thing I can think of is, is if women become serial rapists because of it. Like, that's the moment where we sit there and go, oh, wow, it turns out that using porn as sex education for women for decades has produced some of the most vile predatorial women. We never thought women would be like this. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's almost, I mean, men are Mm -hmm. the ones who are serial rapists and serial killers. There are a few exceptions to that with women, but, and, and when you start to talk about these men, it's like, they're all using hardcore and violent pornography well before they actually commit an act of rape. I mean, 
there are scientific studies that walk you through how the desensitization that more and more violent and aggressive actions of porn feed into a human person who's no who's your dopamine receptors are are being overstimulated by porn so you mm-hmm. need more and more aggressive forms of it but pretty soon the porn's going to wear out man and if you are feeding on violent pornography and i don't think parents realize what violent pornography is like as one who has seen hundreds of hours of pornography in his entire lifetime i can say some of the most normal porn has elements of violence in it and it was it was so weird i remember seeing i i I can't remember how old I was, but the like a man and woman having sex, and the guy just grabs her throat. You know, like in a, in a you know you're like what is, mm. like what is this? Like not there's no, and there's no thing about it. It's not like it's tied to anything mm-hmm. else. It's just his hand is now on her throat, and there's mm-hmm. elements of that through so much of pornography that like there's a reason why men who serially rape women also look at pornography. And I, the only way I can think that our culture says, whoa, this has gone too far. Child pornography, I think, I think our culture is, is sick, will always be sick of that. I think there's elements of our culture mm-hmm. that tries to normalize it, but I don't think that'll ever get normalized. And then there's, um, and then if something fundamentally happens to, the, to women where they're sexual predators to the level that men are, like, I think that that can honestly be the only thing I can think of. Yeah. Yeah, I am a little bit disappointed by some of the Me Too stuff that it didn't lead to a broader call to look at what pornography has done to cultivate that. If I mean, we all think that and know that the, that it absolutely has, but like just asking the question, you know, I think in a broader sense that hasn't happened. Um, uh, you, we're inherently relational beings, and so I, I just if. I've really started, especially as I've gotten older and as I've been married, I've learned that the things that I do in the dark, the little things about myself that I don't like, there's no way to hide that. Yeah. There is like there. I mean, there, you know, I can, I can hide it. People don't well in a quote unquote, not know that it's going on. Um, but the consequences of that are severe. And it, you know, if I'm, um, I'm trying to think of like a really good example if I'm spending too much time by myself and if I'm not around Aaron, Aaron a lot and I'm just pulling myself away from her because I'm like trying to like read a book or like listen to a podcast or do all this other stuff that really doesn't, you know, um, that I, it's, it's not inherently communal how I go about doing that. I'll, I don't want to do more things with her. So like we got to like a quick argument the other day when I really wanted to go on a run and she was um, talking to me about all these things. And I was like, Hey, look, I just want to go on a run. Like, why do I have to add 20 minutes to everything that I do? Because I have to add like Aaron time. And she just stops and goes, because we're partners. Like <laughs> You said in that in the most asshole way possible. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't need I 20 minutes of Aaron time. <laughs> I know. Which I mean, it's a, it's one of those horrible things. And now I, when I say it out loud to 10,000 strangers, I'm like, Oh, that's terrible. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Fifteen thousand strangers. Um, it uh, Q Avengers music it, uh, is, yeah, <laughs> it is horrible. But then, uh, but you know, that's the thing. Like you know, it's stupid crap that we say when we are like Mary and we just like you know get so comfortable with the person that we say out loud the things that we think without even having to stop and like, think about it. But so anyway, you know, that's just like a really you just small spun it into now. a good thing. <laughs> I know, right? You, you just totally made that a good carried. Thing. <laughs> 
carried. Um, <laughs> you, you know what that thing you say when your filter doesn't kick in? Uh, doing a full carry is when you actually make it a good thing. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. I distracted it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I don't know uh, who this carry person is. I've never. Is that a first thing? Yeah, we're, 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 we're way past that. Um, <laughs> just don't tell Aaron that. Um <laughs> Because uh, we need health insurance <laughs> and decent cash flow. You can't see them doing air quotes. Uh, okay, so anyways. <laughs> um, what was I trying to say? The, the, the point is, there isn't anything we do affects the others in our, in our, in our own lives, even, if, even to the point to where if we are being consumed with other things that's when it's just us, we are, we are like robbing others of us. You know, we are, we are like, we are robbing them the chance to know us, for us to be involved, to love other people, to be charitable to people. And I, and I really, I, I think about that a lot because, you know, being not married for all of my twenties, you have a lot of alone time. You have a lot of like you time and there. And I, there are times when I'm like, man, that was so awesome. <laughs> and not, I don't, that's not a slide against Aaron or anything else. It's just like, wow, I had such like time to do things. But then I stop and think and go, Man, what was the opportunity cost? Like, what are the people that I ignored because I needed to go and watch, you know, five extra episodes of How I Met Your Mother on my own or something like that? Like, how did I deprive people of, of like, of me? So the point is that if we have these men who are looking at porn and they're not quote unquote hurting anyone, that's impossible because that's not how humans work. That if we agree that porn is bad or that porn is, um, well, not. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to like make this argument in a way to appeal to people who might be on the fence about porn or think it doesn't really hurt anyone. That's not possible because it automatically pulls you away from real life. It creates a, some sort of weird attachment to fake things. And that can't be good because what's like, what's the cost? The bill comes due always to quote a film we're going to talk about next week. You know, even if you're just um, looking at your own, you're still, if, you know, if you're just um, looking on it on your own and it's affecting you somehow, somehow, some way it's pulling you away from people that you love and that you care about or people who love and care about you. I would summarize your argument as it damages you. Therefore it damages us. Yeah, exactly. Because it hurts you. Even if it's a private secret indwelling sin or whatever, because it hurts you, you're relational. I'm related to you. It hurts us. There is always an us. Mm -hmm. You can't pretend like there's not an us. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that goes for all of humanity. Right. We might feel people's inward sins differently. But uh, I mean, I just I constantly return. I even said this tonight to the the one of the um, sayings that kind of bounces around AA, which is we are only as sick as our secrets. And the secret sin, in a way, is even more destructive than the open one, because at least with the open one, people know how to deal with it. But the secret ones, I mean, you're keeping it hidden. So people can't deal with it. They just see you change. And when people ask you what's wrong and you say, I'm fine or nothing, number one, you confirm in everyone's mind that something is wrong. But, you know, they might say, oh, well, he's just going through like a depression. But there might not be depression. It might be serious habitual sin, you know, and you're not letting anyone in. Therefore, the sickness within you, it, it, really, the reality is it's too much you in there. You need to let other people in. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think one of the issues with porn is that it directly cuts you off from others. You know, by its by it, its very nature, it isolates you. Yeah, absolutely. And how could a thing that is meant to be about bringing two people together, if it's done in isolation, 
how does that lead to their good? And, you know, I mean, like we all know this. I'm just trying. I'm trying to think of the people who are on the fringes who listen to our podcast. We actually have a lot of them. Um, it's uh, yeah. I think about that a lot because I just wonder, you know, like what if we? This is where I. Oh, okay. We're gonna get into some heavy, heavy waters here. This is what concerns me about part of the Me Too movement is that if we don't address some of these core issues, it's actually just going to get worse. Because we're going to like rip the Band-Aid off or we're going to like expose these wounds, expose these bad, bad things that are going on and not really treat them. And so what you're going to have is, is that the wound is actually just going to get worse because it's not actually being healed. It's going to get gangrene and that's no good. You mean the, the, the wound of men's relationship with women? You mean sexual assault in general? You mean like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I mean, listen, we have been, we've been on the record about this plenty of times. We're all about hashtag me too. And, and like what it's doing and, and what it's ex, ex, exposing. And I want that. I want people to continue to speak out. I think it's really great and very important at the same time. Uh, speaking out is not enough because God reveals and heals. And what's going on with a lot of the stuff is the revealing part. And I think there is a lot of healing for a lot of the women that have experienced that because they're able to talk about that. And that is fantastic. But what about the healing for the men? Where does that start? I mean, the men are the bad guys. Therefore, yeah, they're the bad guys. So who gives a shit about them? As someone who does prison ministry, you realize up front and in your face, the entire repercussion of an entire society built upon the notion that they're the ones who are bad, screw them, let them go to hell. And the, mm-hmm. like, I'm I'm not going to pretend like Harvey Weinstein wasn't a disgusting predator who destroyed women's lives. Like, he did. He did. There are a lot of people out there who did a lot less that are being caught up in this whole movement who did wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they did, they did not do wrong. They did, they were, mm-hmm. but they're being, all, everyone is being painted with a broad brush. And that's what happens when the internet shames you. Like, there is a mob that is formed where people are doing a whole hell of a lot of virtue signaling by saying, like, look at how righteous I am. I'm going to go condemn this person. And we are piling on. It's one of the reasons why I like the I, Tanya movie. It's because at one point near the end of the movie, she's, you know, the uh, Margot Robbie playing Tanya Harding is talking about what her ex-husband did to her, what the media at that time did to her. And then she looks at the camera and is like, and what you did to me what you are still doing to me. And I thought like, wow, yeah. that is no, I, I think that was a very powerful point. It just, um, again, we are, we are a community of people. What happens to one happens to all of us. And when we, when we like, it's, it's, it, it always used to drive me crazy when you hear people be like, I just hate the paparazzi. They're just like so mean to, you know, everyone. And they're while they're reading people magazine. And I would just be like, you know, like where they get those pictures from, right? <laughs> like, like you know, like who, like why do people get into that? Why do they sell those? Because people read us. People read people. It's not Enquirer or just like random. It's not like weird LA magazines. It's you know Entertainment yeah. Weekly. It's, it's yeah, all you know. I mean the the celebrity section. I, I want to say it's the New York Times has paid for the entire like the horoscopes, the comics, and the celebrity gossip columns have paid for, I think it's the New York Times, the Washington Post, or not the Washington Post, the New York Times, has paid for the New York Times 
more than all the other stuff combined. Like those sections online make more revenue than any other section, than news, than sports, than editorial. I remember I was, who was saying that, Ben? Uh, I think it was oh, Benedict, what's his name? Uh, he's, a, he's a UK analyst, and now he's working at like a venture capital firm. But that was his big thing. He's like, people don't understand. It's the gossip column, the sports column, and the comics that sell 99% of newspapers. Very few people will read the other stuff, but that's not what sells them. And yet we do. There, this, is, this is the part of uh, America that I think is so fascinating going into this. Sec- we are filled with self-hatred. So I think I'm going to take what you were saying. Without the healing, you have like um, you have this prophetic notion. Like if you if you want to hear the most scathing condemnation of religious people, just read the prophets in the Old Testament. Like no one, and Karl Marx has got nothing on Jeremiah or Ezekiel. I mean, Ezekiel has this vision of the priests in the temple worshiping God, and then they go into this like this creepy crawly room with sick things, blah blah blah, and they're doing all this idol worship and stuff in secret and. I mean, it is like a scathing critique of religion and religious peoples over and over again. And in America, when you, the, this one, um, these, this guy, Mark Sayers, he makes this critique that in America, when you lose Jesus, but you're still at, when you're a post-Christian country, you lose the prophetic and it just becomes self-hatred. And I feel like some of the activism of, uh, and, and you see this all across the board, like, I'm, I am against Donald Trump. I do not like Donald Trump. I, I think he has done some good things concerning pro-life policies, but I do not like Donald Trump. I have always opposed Donald Trump when he was a candidate for the Republican nomination, you know, in the primaries and all that stuff. But the amazing thing is, like, we have people that think Donald Trump is worse than Kim Jong-un. <laughs> like, Kim Jong-un is horrific. You can see gulags from outer space mm-hmm. in North Korea. They've kidnapped like 100,000 plus people from around the world and put them in their prisons. Like, it is an insane Nazi-esque, you know, insane totalitarian dictatorship. And yet, like, America's Americans hate Donald Trump more than that. Obviously, it's your home turf. It's your own guy. You know, whatever. But there's his argument is when you remove Christ and Scripture and, and Christianity from the center of the thing— but you still have elements of the thing left over. His point is the prophetic becomes manifested as self-hatred. And you can kind of see this like this with, when you're pointing out the woundedness, you don't have anyone to heal the wounds. And you think it's going to be what? More dialogue, more invective, more activism. In a certain way, yes, you need the education to make sure it doesn't keep happening. But in another way, what do you do with the broken lives now? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, because a lot of these people are going to go to jail. They're going to go. Our society, I mean, their careers are done. They're probably being sued to mm-hmm. oblivion. And and don't get me wrong, their careers should be done. They used their power to destroy women's lives. And in Kevin Spacey's yeah. case, other men's lives. Like, they did that on purpose. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, he, he ruined a person's life. Like, multiple people mm-hmm. had their lives ruined. So they ought to mm-hmm. have their treasure and their status and their power taken away. But then what? You know, and I think in America we have a a hardcore thirst for vengeance against our enemies that is, is supremely ungodly and dangerous, and and blind. You know, whether you're talking about a Timothy McVeigh or an Osama bin Laden, or you're talking about Saddam Hussein, or you're talking about you know Harvey Weinstein. Like it doesn't matter if it's liberal or conservative, quote unquote, rage. Like it is scary. Well, it's you know, it's take uh, for example Jordan. Peterson, 
I really love probably 80% of what he says. There's 20% that I really don't like and I really don't agree with and to be blunt, have some issues with, you know, I think it's very easy to, you know, get into all of his stuff and see, you know, and to just take the morals of the stories from the Bible or church tradition and not have to get too deep into God as a personal being that like we, that we can um, know who actually intervened and can intervene in our lives. It's very easy to do that. And I think that is dangerous. However, I think he says a lot of things that are really important and really worth talking about and even implementing in your own life. And it's like, you can't, you have to be one or the other. You either think he's the greatest thing since, since, you know, I don't know who, but, or he's just the worst thing ever. And it's just like, what, what, is there no room for like nuance here? Is there no room for, you know, test everything and holding on to the good? Yeah. The, um, one of the things that's, you know, we talk about the polarization of America, like everything is being polarized, like everything. And it's mm-hmm. so polarizing. It, it blinds you to the person in a way that, that honestly, I didn't believe until I, we got that email from the rat trad dude. Like he literally, because I like evangelization and I like the things that Pope Francis says about evangelization, that means I'm pro Pope Francis on absolutely every little thing. I totally agree with him on every little thing. And I'm a liberal, I'm pro DACA, which I am, I'm fine with DACA, but I'm pro, like, I want to take everyone's (laughs) guns. I want abortion to be unregulated. I want to do pillow masses, you know, like all of these things. And it's like, whoa, like, it's almost like there is this bizarre binary in people's heads. Like you have to be in one or the other. There can be nothing else. And if you have one mm-hmm. characteristic of that other, then you you are entirely shoved in that category. And I didn't think people did that to that extent. But when I encountered that email and his follow-up emails where, he, like, I felt like he was going to backtrack a little bit because I explained, you know, I love the traditional mm-hmm. liturgy. I love the Latin. I love this stuff. And then it was, then it, he, like, snaps right back into it about something else. And you're like, wait, what the? Who cares? Who cares if the USCCB <laughs> is politically liberal? Like, they're still not forsaking yeah. uh, the church's teachings. Yeah. Like, get over yourself. They're allowed to, they're bishops too. They're allowed to have political opinions. And they're allowed to say, hey, as a church, I think we, this seems more just than the alternative. But, at the, and you can oppose it. You can go. I mean, I, I talked with a guy who was a freaking immigration agent who said the U.S. bishops have no idea what they're talking about. And I said, then go talk to them. If they don't know what the front lines are like, then you go there. You know, and he was like, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, get a hold of him. Like, he's not an immortal God who can never be touched. He's Cardinal DiNardo. Like, you can give yeah. a call. You can go meet Bishop Schultz. Like, go talk to these people. It's very easy to find their email. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the very least, you can say, I'm an active duty immigration officer. I'm a devout practicing Catholic. I've, I'm following what the USCCB is saying. And it just so happens that my cardinal is the guy in charge of the USCCB right now, the president. Um, I would love to have a 30-minute to an hour-long meeting where we can talk about some of these issues so I can get a better understanding and I can offer him my frontline understanding. Like I think yeah. I Car- someone like Cardinal DiNardo because I I what little I know of him I know that he is a man who hungers and thirsts for knowledge. He is not an idiot with this stuff. He thinks about this stuff. He's not a blind automaton. But uh, talking about that polarization that's happening in our country, um, the weird thing is how um, the Republican Party and we're watching it somewhat collapse with Speaker Ryan stepping down. But um, 
the uh, like Donald Trump was like an insurgent into the Republican Party, and he destroyed or disrupted the entire Republican establishment. Like he really is an insurgent, and so I think in a lot of ways was Bernie Sanders. I don't think the Clinton machine expected Bernie Sanders to overwhelmingly resonate. And I mean, the Democratic Party intentionally took him out so that they could prop up her. And I, I, to me, that's one of the most shocking things of the whole presidential election is they systematically discredited him to prop up her because they thought she would have the best response to Trump, you know, a normal, you know, she, but I mean, she, I think Hillary's awful. But um, so, it, but it just like, but he was an insurgent character. And so the Democrats destroyed him and the Republicans got destroyed. Like, oh, the whole establishment. I mean, they were just, oh, Donald Trump, what a weirdo. Well, we lost this election, fellas. And then all of a sudden he sweeps it and you're like, well, then. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, alternative timeline. I mean, he made fun of John McCain for being a POW. Mm-hmm. And the most POW-loving yep. party, the Republicans, still put him in the presidency. Like, he literally trashed him be- for being a pilot who got shot down, like as if that was his fault. you got to let me speak, though, Frank, because you interrupt all the time, okay? He hit me. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Do you agree with that? He's a war hero because he was captured, okay? You could have, and I believe perhaps he's a war hero, but but right now. Wow. But that's the insurgent nature of it all. And for right now, I'm saying this, people aren't going to listen at all to our show anymore because I said one negative thing about the president. And that's mm-hmm. the bipolarism that I don't get about our society. Yeah. And I mean, and I'll fully admit, like, I've definitely contributed to this in oh so many ways. <laughs> and uh, in it, um, I know what the, there's a weird thing when I think we realize how free we actually are, that it can be quite terrifying. And it's so easy to want to cling to these things that we know are good and that we know are true and just be like, this is the hill that I'm willing to die on. And I have a lot of hills that I'm willing to die on this podcast being being one of them. Um, but there are, you know, like if I, if I could go back and change some of the things I said after the convocation, I, I would. I think my anger was still just, and there's some things that I really wanted to get at. But I would not have said it the way that I did. And I do kind of regret that now in hindsight because it's just more polarization. You know, and um, don't get me wrong. Even when I like have to like think back to a, like, you know, half of what I experienced there. I wanted to start to flip tables over and be like, um, what have we done? Um, <laughs> I was supposed to be we have made a church in uh, our own image and likeness. <laughs> we are no longer walking <laughs> in the footsteps of our Lord. Give me a table. Who has whips? <laughs> our Lord said, condemn the bureaucracy. Um, have none of you read Ratzinger? Um, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't, I don't know, man. Like when, when you start to realize how, free you actually are and and not that god doesn't get involved or that god isn't powerful but that god allows us to be free i think that's really terrifying to some people i think it's really i know for me i like yearned i was so just kind of like the walking wounded for a bit there in my late teens early 20s that i yearned for god to just take care of me it's all that i really wanted was just to be taking to be taken care of. I can remember being um, after, you know, kind of going on a retreat to find some healing from, oh, surprise, surprise, a relationship. 
um, yeah, Father John Ignatius and Father Paul, who were not priests at the time, nor do they have those names, uh, praying over me and just being like, get out from your mat and walk. And uh, I was like, no, what do you mean? Just heal, you know, and it, there's just this weird thing of like, I was too scared. I wanted such comfort and security from God that I'd actually made it. I, I did not think I could survive them. It sounds weird because it sounds like I'm trying to say like you're fine on your own. You don't need God. That's not what I'm. That's not what I'm trying trying to 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 say. But it's this idea where we think God's going to take away all of my problems because that's what God does, right? He takes away like like he takes away stuff, right? That's the whole point of this. And without being willing to just like walk and trust that even though I was hurt, it was going to be okay. And that I was a good person and I could take care of myself. I mean, like really honestly that I didn't need to be in a relationship to have meaning in my life, like in a dating relationship that I could, that, 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 that's not what meaning was. If that makes sense. That's kind of weird. Cause it's something I'm saying, like, relationships don't have meaning that's that's not what i'm saying but i'm saying no let me me, yeah you derived your sense of identity self-worth and purpose through the dating relationship but yes we wanted so what god did by pulling back and not bringing you instant healing was he broke you of that idol or at least began that work and Mm -hmm. i think um Mm -hmm. and i think that that is absolutely true when we want god to to God wants us to grow up. What son, what father does not discipline a son that he loves? And we don't want to believe in a God of discipline and chastisement. We want to believe in a God who is coddling us and keeps us, keeps us adolescents. And this is where I like Jordan Peterson stuff because I feel like one of the things that he is saying is, um, you know, kind of like this notion of the psychology of this father God is he's trying to get his mm-hmm. children to grow up. Now, I have a lot of theological issues with the way he says it, like as if the Garden of Eden was like, hey, guys, time to grow up instead of actually losing salvation. But this fundamental notion of uh, complete dependence of God on God is manifested by us living in the freedom that God gave us, right? Like there is not a contradiction a contradiction between our full reliance, our trustful surrender to God and our living a rich, full and free life. But that's the, I mean, to me, that's the Bishop Barron insight where he calls it um, a non-competitive mm-hmm. co-inheritance where it's like you can have the burnt, the bush set on fire and it doesn't get consumed. You can have a father, son and Holy spirit all have the same nature, but not crowd out the other. You can have Jesus Christ be fully divine and fully human and the divine doesn't annihilate the human. You can have the Holy Spirit fully reign in my heart and not it destroy my personality or my, my selfhood. The Buddhists would see you know, the presence of the divine as the annihilating force. When you're, you're a drop of water in the ocean, you don't exist anymore. It's just the divine. And Christianity is the exact opposite. I mean, there is a sense there's so much overlap between Christianity and Buddhism in terms of like an invented religion and stuff. But there is this other moment where Christianity is like, no, who you are, perfectly you, actually you, really you, most authentically you, will be amplified for all eternity when you're fully united to God. And that's the, that's the I mean, honestly, that was one of the reasons why I stayed Catholic in, um, when I started learning more about morality and all this stuff was this crazy mystery of 
God, the more I relied on God, the more free I became because I was growing up into the, the, the very purpose of freedom. I wasn't being a child anymore. And if God mm-hmm. makes you rely on him in such a way where you don't grow up, then you just remain a child and you lose your freedom. You just want instant gratification, and there's no growth there. Catholic authors, we need a book about growing up that's not like, go to the woods and kill a bear, grr. Like, we need Blue Like Jazz, and we need a book that combines that with Blue Like Jazz and Wild at Heart. That's all I'm saying. Um, you know, like, hearing you talk about all, all, this, all this stuff really reminds me of, when I think back, like, what was the lowest moment in my life of when I, you know, of, of like, when I made an idol out of relationships, what what did the lowest moment actually look like? And it was not when I was like with the girls, or it was it was that I, that I was dating. And it's not when I was on my own, a like a like a alone, like wallowing in pain. It was I can I remember this. It really bothers me. I was home. It was a little bit after Thanksgiving, and I was texting with uh, this one girl, uh, guess who? And we were in. <laughs> We were in like a fight or, you know, a thing. And I was just all, I was just trying to do everything I could to like win the fight, but maintain the a relationship. And Emily was there and she just stops and she goes, you're with your family. We don't get to see you that often. Put down your phone, you know? And I was just more like, but I, I need to, I need to fix this. I, I need to like, we can, I can make this work. Like we are meant to be together. I need this. And just like the anger in her voice, and just like the pain in her face of being like, you, like I robbed myself, I robbed my mom and Emily of me. You know, of we don't get, to, you know, we all lived in different parts. At the, no, I think Emily was in Arizona at the time, but I, I, I wasn't there. I was out in uh, Eureka, and I, you know, I was only able to, you know, I was, I came home a lot, but um, I mean, home being Arizona at the time, only, but only like three or four times a year, and the like the precious few hours we had that we had left, I was on my phone trying, trying to like keep a terrible, broken, horrible, um, horrible like dating thing. I was trying to keep it going because I feel like I needed that at the cost of my relationship with, with my mom and my sister. Like how messed up is that? That's, that's like, that's my, to me, that's when I, that was rock bottom. I think I knew it too. You think that, you were aware that, as it was happening, like well, your sister spoke truth to you and you were like, that is what I'm doing. Yep. I, th- I, I think at the time I was like, I was like, Emily, just stop. Like I'm here. I'm just on my phone. But then like, I think, I think I may have like gone to the bathroom or something or I just kind of like removed myself a bit. I remember being like, you just needed a good cleansing. Right. You just needed a good cleansing poop. <laughs> the old pee and think, um, the old pee, shake and think, um, <laughs> or sorry, pee, think, shake, um, P think shake wash. Uh, yeah, man. That's, and so that's what, what I mean, like. what was, what, what did you realize? Like, what was the concluding part after the shake? Yeah. But, <laughs> I was like success. None of my pants. Um, so far that, uh, <laughs> so far, um, oh God, I'm trying to remember. I, I, it, it was not some huge resolve, just more like a sad realization that I was addicted to that. And then like, she was right. And I felt completely helpless about it. Addicted to the phone or to the dying relationship? The dying relationship. So would you say that, man, you just had to face it, you were addicted to love? (laughs) I'm not saying that. (laughs) I'm not saying that at all, you jerk. I just shared my heart. You turned it into an 80s pop song. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah, Yeah, but, you know, I I think, like, what I needed to, you know, I go back to my soul fed. 
you know, 22, trying to like understand like why did this thing that I thought was God's will that did not work out. The thing that I really honestly that I needed to do was clean my room, um, go to bed early as I could. And like, and I like, you know, I regret not hanging out with the guys in the house more or the people around school or like just really starting to enjoy my last year at Steubenville. You know, instead I was just like, why me, God, what is the meaning of all of this life? You know, it's interesting though, but you needed that. Like you, you needed to go through that crucible because you didn't know that you were still acting like a child. You know what I mean? Like I, I did the same thing when, when my girlfriend, when, when I broke up with my girlfriend, AKA my now wife, and she wouldn't get back together with me when I flicked the light switch in the other direction and said, I want to date again. And she's like, now this is me telling, you no." that period of summertime was so horrible. I mean, horrible. That's pretty bad. But it like that suffering taught me something that I, I mean, honestly, to this day, I am happy that it happened. Mm-hmm. I am happy that it happened because it was the crucible. It was, it was the thing that matured me. It was, it, I, I was soft and doughy and that oven uh, baked me into clay. Like I, I was, I was the child, you know, and that's what made me be a man. And if I didn't go through that, holy crap, I pity my children to have a dad who has never suffered like that. I am so happy I suffered like that before I got married. Yeah. Oh man. I am so I feel I feel terrible for people whose pain has not touched them in that way. Because what could I mean the, the, there's a Jewish saying like he was not suffered what could he possibly know? And the the line that our buddy may he rest in peace Matt Covey used to always quote uh, I showed it to him and then he would always quote it back to me. I showed it to him my fr- our freshman year he'd quote it all the way all the way up. Uh, he said um, in Ecclesiastes, um, what is it? Much learning. There's much sorrow in learning, and an increase in wisdom is an increase in vexation. But there is, but it's not. It's, it's not just like, hey, I know a bunch of stuff. Now I'm sad. It's like I experience knowledge almost through the tragedy and through the sorrow. Is like their only way to get certain types of knowledge, you know. Mm-hmm. And one of that is called maturity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's scary. Like it's. I mean, I. I. I'm still doing this at times. Like this isn't. This isn't a thing. That all of a sudden, like you, you realize that and you get over there. Sometimes I still like. Will um. You know, I, like Aaron's brought up before. Like, don't expect me to solve all of your problems. And I'm like, but, but this is what marriage is, right? Um, Man, you take I, care of me. I love. <laughs> you're my surrogate mother. I love these conversations that you and Aaron have. I feel like you have a fever pitch of emotion Luke, <laughs> that pushes you beyond normal human capacity for emotion. Mm-hmm. Because when, when I get emotional, I get irrational. I feel like though you have a secret like reservoir of emotion that pushes you beyond irrationality all the way back around into hyper rationality where you, <laughs> where I mean, like you say things that are so like in a million years, I would never say to Shannon. But maybe <laughs> I know, but maybe I'm thinking it. <laughs> maybe oh, my and, poor wife. Please I know, but then, but then, <laughs> but then I feel like your wife has not that uh, super deluxe reservoir of emotion that she just is looking at you and like, shut up. Like she can speak. <laughs> she's just super blunt. And so when you make the comment, why can't, why can't I just do a thing instead of having 20 minutes of errand time <laughs> before that, which is so hysterical that you said that it's so horrible right it's oh so horrible 
<laughs> who says that? An awful, depraved, broken man. That's who. No, but a man who is so fever-pitched with emotions that he is now going to say not just the first thing that's in his mind, but maybe this is it. Maybe your emotions are so powerful. They're like a raging flame, a smoke, a fire, raging fire like Hulk, that it burns away all ability to make excuses and to kind of say half-truths, that all that's left is the raw nerve of truth. Why do, mm-hmm. why do I need to give you 20 minutes of Aaron time? I want to talk about me. Want to talk about I? Like that's all <laughs> I that's left. Man, you are fascinating to me. You're like a <laughs> hobbit. I can hang out with you for a hundred years, and still you surprise me. <laughs> that is really true, man. Our our relationship can drive a car. It's in its junior year. <laughs> oh, sorry, about to start its junior year. Yeah, man, 2001 to 2018. Wow. I know. Dude, I, I just watched the uh, Two Knock, Two Knock video. I just, I like, I, I just, I heard uh, John's voice. He was, he was recording the tape and it, I just like, I was not, it was not one of those things where I'm like, glory days. It was more just like a joyful pain because it was like, that was so much fun and that is over with. And that makes me incredibly sad. It's nostalgia, right? That ache to look at the past. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it was it was not this thing of like I want to be back there. It was just more like, oh, that was so much fun, you know. But like, you know, and there are times when I think back, I'm like, Luke, you stupid twenty year old idiot, stop being upset out in Austria because this girl doesn't like you back. Um, uh, name yeah. names, Luke. Name <laughs> names. <laughs> uh, I, I I almost did, and I was like, no, no I'm not going to. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, I failed our audience. <laughs> okay, so I like for a bit. She was into me for a bit. I came on way too strong. She was like, mm, no, thanks. Cue me being depressed for three months. I am so happy you just <laughs> named names. <laughs> and then I remember there was this one girl that was into me, and I was just kind of like, yeah, you're, I mean, you're really cute. I'm kind of into you, but I just, oh, I'm, I'm just so, that was, that was tough. That was a tough week there. You. That's a true story. <laughs> so much brokenness. So much, Luke, I, you is, are only as sick as your secrets, and your secrets are the girl's name. So more names. <laughs> uh, I think the other girl was seconds or something. I don't remember exactly. Um, God, really stop, nice girl. stop naming names. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I never talked to her again. I don't remember. <laughs> she was Asian or Brazilian or something weird. <laughs> I don't know. It was Austria. Um, this is actually, I think I now have a better idea of what my talk on. So I'm giving a talk next week. I'm giving a theology on tap talk next week. What is it going to be on? What is it called? It's on, it's on dating and it's called, it doesn't have to suck. And then in, and then in parentheses, but it probably will. <laughs> Luke, you're so edgy. I bet you all the other theology on tap talks is like how to discern your vocation. And yours it's like, it doesn't have to suck, but it probably will. <laughs> is that what it is? Are the other talks on vocation discernment? No, no, they're all like these really good, profound. It's like, like the talk after mine is going to blow it, just blow mine away in terms of like, oh, this is way more important. Uh, it's about a guy who I know who's actually like listener of the podcast. So if, if you are listening, hi, Kissel, about like how, like God, and how I'm trying to remember exactly what it's about, but just how, god how he works in his life because his kids have this really rare like disease and stuff and it's really he just has an incredible powerful story 
that he lives at, like he is like he lives like every day and my talk is like how to get over being dumped <laughs> so there you go his more inspirational yours probably more practical <laughs> should we bleep out those names I, you were like egging me on you know how i get when i get egged on i can't say no <laughs> luke i want you to understand one thing i will never ever edit that shit out <laughs> oh man yeah this is getting foxes we name names um <laughs> I'm, oh i'm doing a not a theology on tap but our our big young adult event here in the archdiocese there you go i'm giving That's a talk up. i'm giving a talk called how to pray what to say and when to shut up Nice. So it's almost as edgy as yours, right? Yeah, right? No, but it's still. Edgy. Oh. Where'd he go? Yeah. Oh, 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 this is cool. I'm giving a talk at the Dayton Theology on Tap. Very excited for that. I'm going to base it off of our episode, So I Told God I Hated Him. Oh, good luck. Yeah. Ooh. I'm really excited, about, especially that it's Dayton. That is going to be, I'm very, that is so uh, humbling just to be able to give that talk there. I imagine you walking in. Wearing a T-shirt that says "God is not uh, an American." God is not an American. And then, and you're wearing Jinko jeans. I would never wear Jinko jeans. You're wearing Jinko jeans. This is Tommy my Hilfiger carpenter jeans. Thank you very much. This is it, it my was 1998. Dream. Oh, this sorry. is my oh, dream. Sorry. This sorry, is my sorry. dream, Luke. Sorry. Okay, fine. Scratch it. Scratch all everything I said. You're wearing a purple suit. <laughs> you have a perm, and you walk out there, and you're just like daytime. And you scream it like you're a rock star on a stage, but really you're just a guy with a really bad PV amp connected to a crappy microphone at a bar. And you're like, hey, Dan, the prodigal son has returned. <laughs> and then in your head, you're just like, love me. Please tell me you love me. <laughs> I know. I know. I've actually thought about like what it's going to be like to give that talk there. And I almost got choked up thinking about it. <laughs> some depressed luke carey luke carey out there is gonna hear me and change his life or do what i used to do which is ignore exactly. it completely and get hammered drunk in the corner uh, i'm just gonna go to a bar and just like start to talk and some people are gonna be like what's that guy doing and then the other part of the bar is gonna go just just kind of let him be he just needs to do this <laughs> this is his thing just give him a moment yeah, he needs to talk about Marion's Pizza at Jolie Market and blah, 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 blah. Mm. Mm. Oh, Luke, we've been getting some really good emails lately. Uh, yeah, I have no, I'm, oh, man, that one email just tore me up inside. In a, yeah. 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 I don't know how to respond to that. I mean, I, I, I'm going to. I, I want to give a really nice, heartfelt response. But, man, that was, I don't know how much we should share about that, but it was just yeah, like, I wow. Yeah, I don't want to share anything. But I, I do want to say, people... Um, you all are communicating with us amazingly well. I don't, I don't know if people can tell. Can people tell that I'm not commenting on anything on Facebook? Is that a I, thing? I mean, it's pretty obvious. Okay. Yeah, people can kind of tell. I mean, I've, I've said things on the Catching Foxes Twitter account. People have responded with, never change, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. What are you saying? But the I'm just, I'm not doing a, like, I didn't intend to be, like, 99% out of social media it has just I I I don't know when to do it I don't know when to do it I'm I'm like crazy sick busy so I have to ask you a question Luke how did doing your taxes go 
Uh, it was good. It was it. It went well. Uh, the only real issue I need to call the state. I need to call the state of Kentucky because man, it gets a little bit weird when you live in one state and work in another and all that stuff. So, I like doing my taxes. It's kind of fun. There's something about it all that I enjoy. Oh, that's gross. I uh, I sent a message last night at uh, about eight o'clock. No, no, not eight o'clock. I was teaching class. Uh, it was oh, it was at like five o'clock. I just sent, found an old email to my tax guy and said, "Hey, guess what? I just filed for an extension. I'll give you a call in about thirty days." <laughs> like <laughs> you're doing everything. I'm done. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll. I have a feeling that next year I'm gonna have to hire someone out because we'll have a year of the Patreon stuff and uh, hopefully a year of more uh, other things going on. So, yeah. That was a good hour. We didn't get. I was. We were gonna do ten minute topics. I asked for them, but uh, this was way better. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, we didn't throw our. We didn't throw other people under the bus too bad, did we? Because if not, we'll, I'll keep going. We'll ask. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, one day we're going to get an email from just like someone. I'm gonna be like, oh crap, <laughs> it's gonna be super awkward. God, there's only one girl I want to hear from about you. <laughs> and I'm afraid. My wife. When I hang out with you and your wife, she says volumes when she rolls her eyes about you. <laughs> That's all I need. That's all. My, this is my favorite story of, of Aaron and I. This is hands down. Uh, we were in Denver, and we went to meet our friends at a bar, and they were on the opposite side of the bar of where we walked in. And I, they all like – and they all – cheered as we walked in and i went to stand on top of one of the bar stools and Aaron just goes nope and i was like okay and just kept on walking <laughs> and like you know that's us now it's good it's good thank you to everyone who responded to have my wife on their on their podcast i need to uh we've been crazy busy here so i've not gotten back to anyone but uh she's definitely open to it so i'm gonna be in touch with everyone because her story needs to be told because it is beautiful hey i you know what i just think thought of an analogy for catching foxes hmm. Luke, hmm. I will be your bar stool. You can climb on top <laughs> of me and stand. Let me bear you up so that the masses can cheer you on. You'll be my Sam. I can't carry your burden, but I can carry you. <laughs> Mr. Frodo, no. no. <laughs> Share the load. Man, that's a second Lord of the Rings reference. I think I am both Samwise Gamgee and Gandalf. Samwise Gandalf, G. That's me. Yeah, I'm. What would I be? You're you're Bilbo Baggins. Yeah, all your best years are behind you. <laughs> <laughs> your one ring is you're dating in the twenty in your twenties, um, but also that one ring is Just your alcoholism. You like, <laughs> I have. So, oh I think. I, I think. I think the one ring is literally is beer. Because it both enabled you to have really high highs <laughs> and really low lows. <laughs> You're uh, definitely Bilbo yeah. Baggins. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, when I, when I really stop and think about it, that's, it's true because it hurts. <laughs> oh, Luke. Luke, sometimes I watch Family Guy clips on YouTube, and the entire time I am thinking, how did Luke become Peter Griffin so intensely? 
<laughs> I not I, I hate it when you because he's such like a he's a loser. He's not a he's not George Costanza. No, the funny thing about Peter Griffin, Luke, is that both your sister and our friend, soon to be Father David Huss, both bought you the same Christmas present while we were in college. Do you remember what that was? I'm talking about the talking Peter Griffin dolls. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You had one, like, one that was, like, a foot tall, another one that was, like, six inches tall. And I put him. right. Yeah. And it was, I want to say it was David and Emily. I forgot about that. And they both bought it for you. And when we got back from Christmas break, Dave's like, I can't wait to give this to him. And I was like, dude, we have, like, a a two-foot one sitting in our our house. And he's like, what? I was like, yeah, Emily got it for him. (laughs) That's so funny. And, yeah. and you dare mock me for calling you Peter Griffin? <laughs> well, no, because he's just like a lazy, fat, like, like you know, idiot. I don't want to be a lazy, fat idiot. Well, if wishes were stitches. <laughs> <laughs>